Awesome. Thank you, Jamie. Jamie told me earlier that she gets nervous when she gets up speaking public. I think she was just being hum humble about that, don't you think? Because she did not seem it at all. Uh, I am fortunate to have Caleb and Paige and Zoe and Maximus here for emotional support, so hopefully I'll... I'll muddle through. Uh, if you hadn't been here for Bill, I just want to tell you I'm not nearly as smart as him. So hopefully I'll be able to just share something that will be really encouraging to you. So, uh, so let's back up. Some of you I know, some of you are like, who is that guy? Um, I was, as Jamie mentioned, uh, I was on staff here. It's been a few years. Uh, we, Brandy and I and our kids, we left here to go to Spokane in December of 2012. So it's been a little while now. Uh, and we planted a church there called Center Church. And uh, so we live in Spokane. I brought a picture of where I'm from for you, actually. Uh, this is actually all of eastern Washington this time of year. Uh, we, we live in Spokane, and um, I was here back in the fall, and I shared about uh, just this, this kind of what I thought might be a catalytic experience that I had, and so I want to give you an update on that. So, so let me back up and just give you the short, short version of what happened to me last fall and then where we're at now. Last October, I was in Vancouver, Washington for a leadership event for some church planting things, and it was really intense. We had a little break in the day, and uh, it was the place we were was about two, two blocks from the Vancouver Mall. So I walked over to the mall. I thought, eh, I'll just take a lap and then, then come back, right? So I went to the mall, and there was this little kind of boutique T-shirt, you know, Northwest-themed kind of shop, kind of stuff you see at, like, uh, you know, like at the, the farmer's market in Puyallup, that kind of thing. I thought, oh, that looks cool, kind of this hipster place. I'm young and awesome. <laughs> Why are you laughing? Why is that funny? Why are they laughing, Maximus? I don't get it. Uh, no, so I walked into the store. Now, uh, if you've ever done a retail job, you totally know. Like, it can be thankless. Like, somehow people can just forget that, oh, yeah, we're all actually people uh, and just, like, stop responding to the people who do retail jobs uh, in, you know, an appropriate manner. And so... So when I go into a setting like that, like, I'm quick to acknowledge the person working there. Like, they got to be on it if they're going to beat me to the punch because I want them to know, hey, I see you. I know you're a person. You're doing this because you, you need to, just like the rest of us. Like, I, so I'm quick on that. But I walk into the store, and this kid just beats me to the punch. I'm, like, taking my first step across the threshold. And he's like, hey, welcome to I Clothing Company. That was the name of it, E-Y-E. -E. Anybody ever been there? It's in the Vancouver Mall. Anybody familiar with it? And uh, so he greets me at the door, and he starts to tell me about I Clothing Company. Turns out I, E-Y-E, -E stands for Earn Your Excellence. And he said, I have this vision to help people who have a dream see it come to fruition. And uh, so he starts telling me about his store, and he said, my dream is to have a 1,000 of these stores, and this is the first one. And I thought to myself... How many times has he said that to people, knowing full well that in the back of their mind, they're like, yeah, good luck, kid, a thousand t-shirt shops? But he said it anyway. He had this big, hairy, audacious goal, the kind that took some nerve just to say it out loud for people to hear it. And I was like, right on, bro. I'm not betting against you. And uh, it turns out he's got three of them now. Uh, so he's on his way. Good for him. Uh, but I walked away as I'm heading back to my conference that I was at. I'm thinking to myself, do I have a big, hairy, audacious goal, or am I just, like, muddling along through life? Like, where's, where's my goal, my dream that takes nerve just to say it out loud, and half the people will think I'm nutty? Because uh, when I left here to go plant a church, that's exactly what I had. Uh, but then last fall, I thought, hey, we're kind of doing our thing. Like, stability has set in. Like, I, it doesn't really take a lot of nerve for me to say, yeah, we planted this church, and now it's going awesome. That's great. Uh, 
And so God started to just really work on my heart, like, are you dreaming about doing something that's like kingdom meaningful, or are you going through the motions? Have you settled in already? So, so that's what, what's rolling around my head. I don't remember what any of the other stuff we did at the conference was. Like, that was the only thing I'm thinking the whole time. So I go back to my staff, and I said, listen, you guys, um, at that point, we were about five and a half years in, and uh, we had this pretty good growth trend for about three years, and then we kind of just leveled off. Um, and, uh, you know, we had, had ceilings above us, things that needed to be removed so we could go higher. And I said, listen, we got to do something about this. And so let's start, like, fishing. Let's start praying. Like, if we got to get crazy, we got to get crazy. Nothing can be crazier than all of us quitting our jobs and coming to start this church together. So let's start dreaming about what God wanted to do. And so the outcome of that is that this past April, we sold our building. Now, if you've been in this church for a long time, you know this church used to be in a school uh, and then over time, was able to get the resources together to buy a building. We're actually going the other direction. Uh, we actually meet at this school, Westview Elementary. This is our new home, uh, home of the Wildcats. Uh, and we, so we meet at Westview Elementary. We sold our building. And our idea was, let's go find the neutral ground where the community already is. Uh, it's certainly not the calling for everyone. Uh, but for us uh, in our church, we thought, you know what? Let's just do something crazy and see if God will will work with it. And it's been awesome. Uh, we've been there about four months now, and it's been amazing. And so now we're thinking even crazier. Uh, people will ask, oh, you sold your old building. You know, so obviously there's some resources attached. That, you know, obviously you're going to buy another one, like upgrade right there. And we're kind of like, maybe, but maybe we're going to stay here forever. And I'm going to say this out loud in public for the first time ever. We're kind of thinking, maybe we're just going to plant a church in every school in Spokane. <laughs> The kind of thing that takes a little bit of nerve just to say it out loud, so much that you're not quite ready to like publish it on the internet, uh, but we're just thinking maybe there's some other crazy stuff out there for us to do. And what's been wild about it, my point in telling you that is to give you an update, this church is a, is a huge, huge part of that. This church was the launching pad for our church. Uh, but my point in telling you that is that as we have stepped out and gotten a little crazy and started to dream again, God's just been there. And the things that we thought might be really hard uh, have, have been taken care of. They haven't all been easy. Some of them have been hard, but God's just met us there and met us there. And so I really want to say to you, man, don't be afraid to dream about crazy things for the future. Uh, don't be afraid to entertain the possibility that maybe the best days of Celebration Center are still in front of you. I mean, there's a lot of good ones behind you, but maybe the biggest, best, most awesome thing that God wants to do is still in front of you. So I just want to say, don't be afraid to dream about that as a church. Uh, and so to that end, I, uh, I want to talk today about hope. Uh, in generations past, uh, a lot of young ladies would acquire one of these, a hope chest. Uh, probably not as common as it used to be, but they would often be given one by their family. Just quick show of hands. Who, who got one of these? Are there, are there anybody here who does? Oh, yeah, a whole bunch of you. Um, they're typically given to a young lady uh, by a family member for some momentous occasion, like maybe a 16th birthday, 18th birthday, graduation, something like that. And uh, it's called a hope chest, and in it, she would put uh, things that maybe were significant mementos from her childhood, things that were family heirlooms, things that maybe she wanted to have hopefully in her home someday. And the idea was, let's give these things a place of safekeeping so that in the future, you'll have them to maybe pass on to your own kids. 
Uh, let's, give, let's give these things that represent the dreams you have for your future a safe place. And the items that one might keep in there, they're, they're really representations of the hopes that she would have for her future life. Now, all of us have a hope chest somewhere. Some of you, many of you, it looks like, have an actual hope chest, but the rest of us, we have one too. Even if it's just back here in the recesses of your mind, we're all storing up our hopes, our ambitions, our desires for the future. All of us have that somewhere. Somewhere in, inside of all of us, somewhere maybe even in reality, if you have an actual hope chest, somewhere we're keeping our treasured dreams. Uh, somewhere we're, we're keeping the dreams we have for the future. Our hope lives somewhere. And so I brought some things that uh, you might put in your hope chest. Many of us probably have in ours. And uh, so we'll see if you can uh, relate to some of these. Uh, the first one, especially if you have young kids, no doubt you have one of these uh, in your house. But uh, how about this guy right here? How about the piggy bank? Uh, a lot of us store our dreams in the bank, in our financial situation. Uh, see if this rings a bell. Man, if I could just get to a certain point financially, then I wouldn't have to worry anymore. Then the stress would go out of my life. Uh, maybe that's like an hourly wage that you have in mind or an annual salary. Maybe for some of you, that's like a dollar number for retirement. If I just got to that number, if I just got to that place financial, financially, then I wouldn't have to worry anymore. Now, I've learned some things about money uh, just by way of being on the planet for four decades. Uh, when I was in my early 20s, I had what, for that stage of life, was a really good paying job. It was, really, it was a great job, and I started paying into a 401k at an early age. Not because I was like a financial guru, but because people said, you should do this, and I did it. And uh, so I did that job for three or four years and paid into this 401k, and then I, like a lot of people, left the job and just left the money sitting in the 401k somewhere and didn't pay any attention to it. So this last year, I thought, you know, I should probably just go like look that up, see if there's anything in there still and do something with it, right? Like roll it over into some other retirement account. And what I found was that uh, in the 18 years, 18 years since I walked away from that, uh, when I looked at the graph that the company sent me, it has gone like this, <laughs> up, down, up, down. The market's gone up, the market's gone down, the market's gone up, and right now it's way up. And there's about 600% more money in that account than there was when I walked away. And man, was I glad I decided to look it up and do something with it. But one thing I've learned is that uh, when I'm banking on money, my financial situation is going to ebb and flow. You know, the market's going to go up, the market's going to go down, my bank account balance is going to go up, it's going to go down. Like, if that's, if that's what I'm filling up my hope chest with, that's going to be a rocky ride, you know what I'm saying? Money doesn't have the power to do a lot of the things that we often hope that it will do. I bet there's people here in this room who right now today have more money than they've ever had, and yet the ship hasn't come in. I'm not totally fulfilled because wealth doesn't have the power to do certain things that we need it to do. It doesn't have the power to fix a marriage. It doesn't have the power to heal old wounds or overcome addictions for us. It doesn't even have the power to create self-worth. Anybody recognize the name Marcus Pearson? Anybody? See if we got... Okay, I just want to see if there are any true nerds in the room. Marcus Pearson is the guy who invented a video game. He wrote the code for a video game called Minecraft. Ah, there it is. That rings a bell. Uh, 
And a couple years after he created the game, he sold it to Microsoft for $2.5 billion. Now, just to be clear, there were no actual minds exchanged, hard as that is to believe, uh, but he sold this code for $2.5 billion. And then he became internet famous for being transparent about how having all that wealth has actually made him more miserable and more lonely than ever, and he can't have normal relationships because his life is so out of balance with everyone else's. Now, to be clear, I'm not saying his money is, is bad. I'm saying if the choice is more or less, I choose more. But I learned a really valuable lesson that I want to share with you from a guy named Tom. Tom I met when I was in my mid-20s, and he was just getting ready to retire. We met through the golf community. Some of you know that's, that's kind of been my world. And... Uh, I met Tom, he was just getting ready to retire. Tom grew up in the inner city projects of Philadelphia, and when he was getting ready to retire, he was in the process of selling off his 18 restaurants. Uh, so like serious rags to riches for Tom, good for him, great guy. And uh, one of the things he was telling me was, you know, I've made all this money and I've got enough now that uh, there's plenty of money for me to do whatever I want for the rest of my life, and then when I die, then there'll be some left for my kids. And then he said, but what I've learned is that money can't buy happiness. It can buy fun, and fun is a great distraction. And if you have enough of it, you can go from one distraction to the next without ever paying attention to the things that are really bothering to you, but it'll never buy happiness. It can't do it. And I think a reality for all, a lot of us, maybe not all, but a lot of us is, in many ways, we're filling up our hope chest with financial dreams, hoping that when we just get to a certain level, we won't have to worry anymore, and we'll find fulfillment. And I just wonder, are we filling up our hope chest with more of what didn't work last time? Uh, if, if somehow, if I just get more of what hasn't worked yet, will that be the answer? So that's one thing that a lot of us put in our hope chest. Uh, this guy right here, oh man, he lost his golf club. We gotta, we gotta fix that. Uh, do you remember a time when you won a trophy? Maybe you, got, maybe you got some kind of an award. There you go. I actually bought this for myself, the one and only time I ever beat Chris Hansler at golf. Uh, <laughs> No, just kidding. Uh, uh, you remember a time you got an award, maybe a sporting award or an academic award, maybe you did music or dance, or maybe you raised something or made something to compete in a fair, or maybe you got like some kind of recognition at, uh, in your workplace or in your school. Uh, I think most of us really like the feeling that comes from being recognized for achievement. Even the people that are like, oh, stop, 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 they don't mean that. Most of us really like that feeling of recognition that comes from achieving. Uh, I, this, this for me, this is one for me. Because the feeling, you know what happens when you achieve? You think, man, if I can just achieve on this level, then people will respect me. If I can just achieve on this level, then I'll be okay with myself. Then I'll be satisfied with what I've accomplished. But you know what happens when you establish a reputation as a high achiever? you are rewarded. You know what the reward is? It's awesome. You get rewarded with the opportunity to work and work and work and work to try and maintain your reputation as a high achiever. Now, that's the reward for it. And I wonder sometimes when I, I look in the mirror, have I filled up my hope chest with something that's just not going to get me to the place that I think it's going to get me to? One other one. I brought, I brought one more. Um, this could go on all day, but uh, how about this one? You remember a time when you just, when you fell in love and all you could think about was the approval of that person and just being with them and you just wanted their approval more than you wanted to breathe? 
And you thought, man, if I'm with the right person, I'll just, I'll be happy. If I'm with the right person, I'll be happy. Uh, and, you know, you finally, you search and you search and you search and you found the right person, Mr. Right, Miss Right. And you thought, I have found the perfect person. I feel so bad for all the rest of you guys. I have found the one and only perfect person. And then you got married and you found out they weren't actually a perfect person. They were actually a person, a very normal person like the rest of us. And maybe uh, if you're you know, really a hopeless romantic, maybe that's been like two or three or four Mr. Rights or Mrs. Rights. And, and you're sort of wondering, man, have I, been, have I been filling up my hope chest with the wrong thing? Now that, that happens. That's one that we can, we can easily, easily fall into. We fill our hope chest with all kinds of things. But I think most of us are pretty simple. I think most of us want to have a good life and share it with somebody we love, share it with a group of people that we love, uh, our family, our close friends. Uh, we want to have a manageable stress load. Like, we just, we kind of want simple things for the most part. Maybe a few extras would be awesome, you know, like a huge boat. And I'm not, that's not that much to ask. Uh, but, but for the most part, like, our, our real deep desires are fairly simple things. But have you noticed that at times in life, even those simple things just seem like, wow, this is impossible. This is never going to, to work out. And what happens for us is we, especially when we're young, we're optimistic, we make our plans and we set out to, in search of our own version of the good life, and then our plans go awry. Uh, I don't recommend quoting Mike Tyson, but I'm about to do it because one time that I know of, he said something really profound. He said, Everybody's got a plan until they get punched in the mouth. Isn't that how life works? Everybody's got a plan until they don't anymore, till the job doesn't pan out, till the education that was going to get the job doesn't pan out, till the person you thought was going to be with you through thick and thin is nowhere to be found. Uh, by now, maybe you thought, gosh, I, I thought I'd have a family and this and that and the other by now, and it's just been a lot more difficult than you thought it would be. Maybe health issues have derailed your plans. Maybe someone else's health issues have derailed your plans. Everybody's got a plan until life executes its plan. We all, we all go through those kind of experiences. In Luke 24, we're going to move pretty quickly through this section, but there's a couple of guys who just got punched in the mouth. I mean, their, their hopes have just been smacked down. So if you have a Bible handy and you want to turn to Luke 24, if you've got a device handy and you want to go there, or you can just look at the screen. Your choice. Uh, in Luke 24, we find a couple of guys about a little over, a little less than 48 hours after Jesus was crucified, and there's a couple of guys walking along, and their hopes for the future have been crushed. They were expecting that Jesus would be the one who would restore the peace and prosperity of their nation, and now he's gone. Now, as far as they know, he's dead. Now, uh, spoiler alert, he's not dead. Okay, we know that. Uh, he's actually been resurrected already. They just haven't found that out. Uh, and so, at the moment, they're just crushed. They're devastated. So Luke 24, verse 13, this is what it says. Now, at the same, now, that same day, two of them were going to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. Seven miles. How long does it take to walk seven miles? What do you say, Micah? An hour. An hour. Wow. Okay, that's ambitious. Uh, I'm going to say probably two to two and a half, depending on uh, how quick you go. Um, but you're young, so you probably know some things I don't know. Next verse, verse 14, it says, they were walking and talking with each other about everything that had happened. So they're walking along seven miles, talking about what had happened, lamenting the loss of hope. Man, we were so stupid. What are we going to do now? We, put, we banked everything 
on Jesus and this revolution, this movement that he had started, and now he's gone. We've lost everything. So they're walking along, they're lamenting it. Next verse says, as they talked and discussed these things with each other, Jesus himself came up and walked along with them, but they were kept from recognizing him. So Jesus comes along, he's walking with them, he joins them. Uh, There is such a thing as a disorder, it's referred to as face blindness, where um, it's not a vision problem, it's a cognitive problem where you can see someone's face, but your brain doesn't make the connection, like the recognition. I don't necessarily think that's what's happening here. I think Jesus is probably just not ready to reveal himself to them yet, so he's kind of doing a supernatural, miraculous thing, because when you're the son of God, you can do that. Uh, That's what I think is happening, but in either case, Jesus is with them. They don't know it's him. And he asked them, what are you discussing together as you walk along? Hey, guys, what you talking about? What's going on here? The next sentence, verse 18, it says, they stood still with their faces downcast. Okay, Caleb, let's try something. Let's just say you came up to me and said, uh, what you talking about? Go ahead. What you talking about? And I did this. (laughs) My face is downcast. Walking along, and I stop. My face downcast. What does that look say to you? Leave me alone. Leave me alone. Bro, what are you even talking about right now? Have you been under a rock for the last two days? Kind of. Jesus didn't say that. They stood still, their faces downcast. One of them named Cleopas asked him, are you the only one visiting in Jerusalem who doesn't know the things that have happened here in these days? He's busting Jesus up, which is pretty bold, but, you know, I'll let him off the hook. He doesn't know that yet. Next verse, what things Jesus asked, which is also funny, about Jesus of Nazareth, they replied, He was a prophet, powerful in word and deed before God and all the people. The chief priests and our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death, and they crucified him. Pay close attention to what they say next. But we had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. But we had hoped. We were hoping for something else. We were hoping that he was the one who was going to change our situation We'd hoped that he would be the one who would redeem our people and liberate us from our oppressors and restore our peace and prosperity. But now he's gone six feet under, and our hopes are pushing up daisies right next to him. They've lost hope. And that's a scary place to be. See if you can finish this sentence. Uh, Proverbs says that hope lost makes the heart sick. Isn't that true? Most of you have lived long enough to know Yeah, when I run out of hope, that's a bad place to be. It makes the heart, it makes the heart sick. And I bet that if I started a sentence with the words, but I had hoped, most of you could probably finish that sentence with an experience from your own life. I know I I could, but I had hoped, but I had hoped that this would be my dream job. We'd hoped that this would be our forever home. Uh, We'd hoped that the cancer was finally gone. We'd hoped that our marriage was going to be restored and a thousand other things. Any one of us could finish that sentence, but I had hoped every one of us could do it. And Jesus, of course, is very tender, very empathetic to their situation. And so this is how he responds in verse 25. He said to them, how foolish you are. (laughs) Wow. And how slow to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? He's saying, 
didn't Jesus tell you exactly what the prophets said hundreds of years before that, that all of this was going to happen? And I just wonder, like, at that point, they probably should have been like, he did say that. I do remember that. And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. So Jesus taught them, listen, the prophets told us this was going to happen. And then Jesus even said this was going to happen. And for two hours as they're walking the seven miles to Emmaus, Jesus is explaining this to them. And aren't you glad I don't have that kind of energy? Because we're not going two hours. (laughs) By the time they get to the village... After two hours of conversation, they know each other. Now, this is a different culture. Uh, They don't have lights, for one thing. So you don't go out at night. Uh, People often would take strangers into their own home to protect them, basically. And so uh, these guys ask Jesus, who they don't yet recognize, to stay with them. In verse 30, this is what it says. When he was at the table with them, he took bread, gave thanks, broke it, and began to give it to them. He began to give it to them, not gave it to them. Something really interesting happens right here. Uh, When Jesus reached out to pass Caleb the bread, what might Caleb have noticed that he didn't see before? Probably what's happening right here. The scars in his hand. Verse 31, then their eyes were opened and they recognized him and he disappeared from their sight. They asked each other, were not our hearts burning within us? While he talked with us on the road and opened the scriptures to us, didn't the heart know something was going on? So after dinner, they're pretty wiped out, and they just decide, eh, we'll go back to Jerusalem tomorrow. No, that's not what happened. Uh, He's alive, so they get up and immediately go the seven miles back to Jerusalem. Verse 33 says, they got up and returned to Jerusalem at once. So far, the only people that know Jesus is risen, uh, if you remember, the the group of women went to the tomb, Uh, Peter was there, a few of the disciples have found out, and they went back and told their crew, but that's it. Like, the masses don't know yet. These two guys returned to Jerusalem, and they found the 11 disciples and those with them assembled together, saying, it's true, the Lord has risen and appeared to Simon, Peter. Then the two told them what had happened to them on the way to Emmaus and how Jesus was recognized by them when he broke bread. I'm guessing the return trip was less than two hours, probably faster. Uh, and they came back and they said, guys, we saw him. And they're like, I know. And they're like, no, he's alive. We know. We, we know. He's alive. No, no, listen. This is what happened. Remember when he said this was going to happen? We do remember. He's alive. No, no. We walked with him, and he explained to us that God was planning this all along. We even saw his nail-scarred hands. He's alive, and it turns out that we'd hoped in the right thing after all. Imagine what it felt like to have the hope just breathed back into them, to just have that totally restored. I think we put our hopes in some combination of two things. Sometimes we fill our hope chest with someone. We're banking on a person or a relationship or a circle of relationships to be our source of joy and purpose and meaning. Other times we bank on something. We build the house. We get the job. We go on the vacation. We finish the education. Then, then I'm going to arrive. Then I'm going to be happy. If I get the girl or I get the house or I get the girl with the house would be optimal. At times, we hope for things that are like fun and sort of inconsequential. This spring, I was hoping for something. I was hoping that my alma mater 
would get to the Sweet 16 in, in uh, the NCAA tournament. Go Liberty Flames. But darn you, Virginia Tech. What's a hokey anyway? But I got over it because it wasn't that big a deal. Sometimes we hope on for fun, inconsequential things. But sometimes we're hoping for very consequential things that we don't get to get over. Like when we're hoping that they come back home someday. Or we're hoping that it's not cancer, or we're hoping that we don't lose our home. Someday, hopefully a very long time from now, all of the things that we toil for and work for and worry about, someday all of them are going to come to nothing. Uh, welcome to Celebration Center. <laughs> Life is a temporary arrangement. I didn't need to tell you that. Uh, that, that that's happening for all of us. We're all getting older. Um, even if you're young, you guys are all young and beautiful and handsome up here. Just hang around. Gravity's going to do its thing. Just stick around for a while. We're all going the, we're all going the same direction. Uh, but that's, that's our reality. Life is, life is a temporary situation. I don't even think it's bad news. It's just a reality. Uh, a few years ago, I caught myself starting to sound like my dad sometimes. And I've stricken no less than three dozen phrases from my vocabulary because of it. Sometimes I look at my younger brother, uh, who looks just like me, and I think, dude, you look old. What is going on? Uh, as we age, like the weight in our body moves from the poles toward the equator. That's, that's, just, that's just reality. Some of those things are not that big a deal. I can laugh about them, but some of them are a lot harder. Like in the last five years, there are dreams that I've had to say, you know, it's, this isn't going to happen. It's time for me to, to let go of a few things and and pass it on to the next generation so that they can do the things they're dreaming about. Uh, those things aren't easy. Many of you know exactly what I'm talking about. Some of the things are a lot more consequential. But I've had to come to realize that if I fill myself, if I fill my hope chest up with things that are guaranteed to disappoint at some point, sometime, some point I'm guaranteed to be disappointed. If I fill my hope chest up with things that have a temporary lifespan, at some point, they're going to leave me disappointed. And I just don't want to head down that path. And you know what I don't want to do even worse? I don't want to circle the cul-de-sac, uh, you know, chasing the things that we chase in life, hoping they'll make us happy. But I definitely don't want to teach my kids to do that. I don't want to pass that on. You know what I'm saying? Uh, man, if you're, if you're a parent, you, you totally get that. I want to teach my kids to spend their life pursuing things that are going to matter, things that aren't going to let them down. Now, Listen, uh, let, me, let me just try to put this all together, and, uh, and then we'll get out of here and go crush some nachos or something. There you go. There you go. I just got an amen right here from the front row. Um, I realize that this church family is in significant transition. Now, this, this particular church family has a very, very uh, dear place in my heart and in Brandy's life. Truthfully, this is the place that I really fell in love with the gospel. Uh, I was a Christian before that. I was saved. I, 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 all that. But this is the place where I went, oh my gosh, I think Jesus, I think God sent his son in the world to actually die for me. Like, that just became personal uh, to me. And so this church family is very, very significant. Some of my best friends in the world are here, part of this church family. But I also recognize that when there's transition, the future is uncertain. Um, and so I don't know that I'll always have the opportunity to come and be here with all of you. And so I want to tell you the most important thing in the world to me, okay? First Peter chapter 1, verse 3, this is what it says. It says, praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he's given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. 
In the New Testament, the word hope appears 71 times. One time before the resurrection, 70 times. You could have done that math, probably figured that out without me saying it. 70 times after the resurrection. Uh, I'm no genius, but I can figure out the significance of that. Through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, yes, our sins are paid for. Yes, we have eternal life, but we also have the right to be called children of God, to be his children. Through Jesus, he is our eternal father, and he's never going to get old. He's never going to get tired. He's never going to give up on you. Jesus paid the bill in full. And I, I had this experience recently. I just, I just want to share this story with you before we, we go. Uh, I was at a leadership event in Spokane, and I met a guy. He was from Portland. His name was Seth. Uh, he, he didn't know anybody. He came, and uh, there was an empty chair by me. So, so he sat there, and uh, we were next to each other the whole day, so we, we chatted quite a bit. And Seth, is, he lives in Portland, but he's, he's from Australia. You know when you're around somebody who has an accent? you know, that's foreign to you, you just want them to, like, talk <laughs> the whole time. Uh, if I didn't know any of you, I'd totally be faking an Australian accent today because you just want me to go forever. Uh, but Seth was from Australia, and uh, among the things he, we discussed, he told me something that seemed really odd at first, and you'll, it was going to seem really odd to you. He told me that he, his big toe is, like, disproportionately large. I, like, like freak show material, like it just makes no sense on my foot. It's just massive. It's so much bigger than all my other, my other toes. I don't even like to ever like have people see my feet in public, like at a pool or wear flip-flops. He's like, no, it's just, it's crazy. It's weird. My big toe is just huge. And he said, and my son, who's in elementary school, he has the same thing. I passed it on. And, uh, and then, you know, we were just chatting, and he told me his son also uh, happens to be autistic. He's on, he's on the spectrum. And, and in his particular case, that manifests itself with a lot of behavioral difficulty. And so, um, so as you can imagine, that's, that's really stressful on him and his family. And school has been really difficult. His son's uh, four or five years into school now. And he said, you know, it's, it's basically just been a trial after trial after trial the whole, the whole way. And earlier this past school year, he got a call from the school because his son had a particularly uh, offensive outburst, and so he had to go and meet with the principal and the teacher, and they were telling him, Seth, it's just a constant problem. It's just a constant disruption. It, it never stops. And, uh, and he said, you know, he was trying to hold himself together emotional, because for him, it's 24-7, right? It, it literally never stops for him. He doesn't get to go home at 3.30. And um, so he's, you know, he's just, he's just thinking to himself, we've tried so hard, and here I am again. Like, you can, you can imagine the discouragement that he's feeling. And, and he said, the teacher said to him, uh, you know what? I just, I just can't do it anymore. I give up. And he said he just couldn't take it anymore. And he just put his head down and just started sobbing, right? Just in the principal's office. He's just sobbing. And, and as he's there, he says, it was, like, it was like God spoke to me. He's like, I put my head down, and there's my feet. I'm staring at my feet. <laughs> and I'm sobbing. And he said, he's got my big toe. And they're like, what are you talking about? And he said, I'll never give up on him because he's got my big toe. That's my boy. It's my son. He's got my big toe. He said, he said it occurred to me that God gave me this huge, ridiculous toe uh, for no reason up until now when I needed him to remind me that he's got my big toe. You know what? Ephesians 1.13, when you believed, you were marked with a seal. His son has a big toe. It's an irrevocable mark of their relationship. 
And Ephesians says that when you believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. If you put your hope in Jesus, guess what? He's never going to give up on you. You're his son. Caleb, God's never going to give up on you. If you stick with him, you're going to win. You follow his lead. He's never going to give up on you. You know why? Because you, you got the mark. You got the Holy Spirit. Irrevocable mark of your relationship with him. How amazing is that? Psalm 23, maybe the, one of the most famous uh, chapters in all the Bible. Even if you've never read the Bible, but you've seen a mobster movie, you've certainly heard the 23rd Psalm. The last sentence, this is what it says. It says, surely your goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life. And when this life's over, I'm going to dwell in your house forever. How awesome is that? What a great hope is that to have. So here's what I want to do. Um, I'm going to pray, and uh, and then I'm just going to shut it down. The band, thank you guys so much for being being amazing and leading in worship. Uh, you You guys can stay where you're at. I think God is calling us right now in a time of transition to just hope in him again. He's going to work out the details of leadership and finance and structure and systems, all the stuff that goes along with transition in church. But let's just hope in him again. Let's just remember that he's still on the throne. Let's just remember that we got his big toe. He's not going to give up on us. So let me pray for you. God, thank you, Lord, that, um, that when we believe in you, you give us your spirit. When we put our hope in you, you put your spirit in us. As an irrevocable mark, sealing up your promise that we're your children now and forever that your goodness and mercy belong to us every day of this life. And when this life is over, we're going to be with you forever. And so, God, I pray for the one who's frustrated in a job or a relationship or in education or by their financial situation, uh, all the, the cares and concerns of life that press in us. God, I pray that you would remind them to hope in you again. And that each and every one of us would see what you promised in John 15 where you said, If you abide in me, you will bear much fruit. God, I pray that that would be a real touchable thing uh, in this church family collectively, but also in each and every household represented right here. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Hey, would you stand up with me? Uh, I just want to say thank you so much for allowing us to continue to be part of your uh, church family. Uh, We love you guys. It is such a privilege for us to be here. And I also want to say, have an amazing Sunday afternoon. Love you guys. Take care.